I'd invite you to take your Bible this morning, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to continue our series on the book of 1 Timothy. But there is something I think every time we get together that we have the chance to appreciate even more and more. And, and I, I would hope that, that as you are further and further along in your Christian life, that there are things that, that grow in appreciation. One of those things uh, I think that should grow in appreciation is our value and appreciation for truth. That, that we can actually have a sovereignly inspired text of Scripture that is authoritative in such a way that it guides us through our life. There are things that are just, what would, we, what would we do if we didn't have trustworthy things? We all know that because many of us may at one point have driven an untrustworthy vehicle. And we know what that's like. Could you imagine getting in your car wondering every morning, dear God, please start. You know, you never have to pray the prayer, dear God, like, Make your scripture work. It works. The challenge is that it is often us. This morning in the text of scripture that we have in 1 Timothy chapter 1, we are going to come across uh, the first in the pastoral epistles of a number of different statements that are described as trustworthy sayings. And we can value that essence of trust. And I always think, could you imagine living without that? I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I uh, have this wonderful experience of eating various uh, Chinese food at different times. And at the end of that uh, experience, there's always this one delightful moment at the end of that meal of my Chinese food. And you know what it is? It's the fortune cookie. Well, I don't believe it to be authoritative, there's an element where I break it open. And you know what? You do this, don't you? When you're sitting there with somebody like, go ahead, read it. Read it out loud. Could you imagine thinking about the truth like that? You open that fortune cookie up and all of a sudden it's like, you will be greeted with a smiling face that will be potentially your spouse and his name is Bob. And the rest of that day, you go in kind of thinking, are you Bob? No. Okay, good. Are you Bob? In the truth of God's word, there is something so much more satisfying, so much more deeper, something more authoritative, that when we open up those pages of the Bible, it is so unlike that experience of opening that fortune cookie up, wondering if there might be some good in store for me. The Bible gives you that perspective where as we get into the text of Scripture Sunday after Sunday and you go into it with your devotions and various ways that, that you are learning the Bible, we are struck time and time again with its authoritative, precise instruction for the way that we ought to live. Paul continues this perspective as he goes and walks into the latter part of this section. And you notice that all this whole entire section is addressing these false teachers that had now come up through the ranks of the Ephesian church. And yet this trustworthy saying that he will expose to us this morning is now an extension of what he's been trying to say to the Ephesian elders, to the Ephesian church, against these false teachers to say that truth is extremely valuable. And so when we walk into a text like today in 1 Timothy 1 and we start 
Uh, let's look back and remind ourselves of where Paul has been in verse 14. He says this, And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. There is something that had welled up in him that he had been drawn towards, that he had been overwhelmingly bestowed upon, and it was grace. It was something so opposite of what the false teachers were proclaiming, that you could have a faith and you could have a grace in all of this myth and genealogies, but it was a faith, it was a faith that would not save, and it was not a place that would be guided towards grace. They were doing it for all the wrong reasons. Now, as we get into our text this morning and we think about this statement, because this is really the key element of our text this morning, that the salvation of sinners displays the very patience of Christ. The salvation of sinners displays the very patience of Christ. Let's look at this, this ending of this text uh, in starting in verse number 15. Here's what he says. Read it with me. Uh, follow along as I read it. It says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Here Paul continues to extend his conversation with the Ephesian church to try to help them understand and resonate with this reality of, of what, was, what was needing to be embraced in God's larger story of redemptive history, there was, there was something that took place and Paul would now resonate with it because it was so opposite than what the false teachers were trying to pro proclaim. And there are two timeless truths that I want to really work through this morning as we see in this particular text. And I think it starts with a truth about ourself. There's something about us that we must know. There's something about us that we must understand and intersects with the very gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you notice this? Now, let's just look at the statements that he made. This is a trustworthy saying and deserving of full acceptance. Now, interesting enough, in the larger context, most of theologians who come to this particular passage understand that when a statement like a trustworthy saying in fact, he's saying this, reliable is this saying to you, and it's worthy of full acceptance. You know what he's saying about this, this doctrinal statement that he is about to declare? Whatever it says, this is one of the single most reliable things that I could say to you. It is so reliable that you can bank on it. It's so reliable that you can take it and, and say, false teachers, you're, this isn't reliable. This is what's reliable. Truth is reliable. It is the one thing the one commodity that we have, that as we look at our own spiritual lives, is that, is that when we go to the truth, we can bank on it. And this is what he continues to say. And even in the larger, even broader context, most theologians would understand that when he is about to give this trustworthy saying, that there was a formulation going on within the, the early New Testament churches of the formulation of key doctrinal statements about the truth. And so when 
when Paul writes to Timothy and he says, Timothy, this is a trustworthy saying and full of all acceptance. It's worthy of being accepted. It is also a recognition of very key doctrines that were being laid down in the early church so that we could begin to know they believed this and they didn't believe this. So when you come across a text like this and a statement like this, it is a powerful statement for Paul to say, it is deserving of your full acceptance, your full attention, your full sense of, of devotion. Why? Because it is completely and utterly reliable. You will go to it time and time again, and this is the thing that I think astounds me over a short period of lifespan that I have now lived, is that you hear from generation to generation, grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents, and everybody's into, you know, family history and lines, and what you realize is the timeless truth of the reliability of God's word has superseded generations of people. And for many of us, Perhaps you're like me because you, had, because you had generations of people who had been devoted to the reliable truth of God's word, who brought it to their home, who taught it in family worship, who went over it time and time again because the truth was that reliable. And do you realize that if God tarries and all of a sudden we're all dead and there's a whole nother population of the chapel body, many of whom we will never know that if God tarries that long, and I know you're saying, please, Lord, don't. You want to go now. But what if he decides to tarry? And a whole new population of people become members of the chapel, that the truth of God's word will not be any less reliable a hundred to two hundred to a thousand years from now. And it was nothing to do with men. It has everything to do with God. These statements of, of trustworthiness in the very truth of God's word. Christian, I pray and challenge you to not just consider the doctrinal foundation from which you say is reliable, but do you live in a way that, you, that your life is marked with a sense of the reliability of the truth? That it is the first place you go to try to figure out what's going on with you spiritually. It is the first place you run to every time there's a challenge because it is that reliable for you. It is the place where we will find accuracy and appreciation for what God has said. I think for so many years when we think about these trustworthy statements, I hope that whatever comes out of any one of our mouths, that we could say, here's what I know is trustworthy. And it's not some, you know, wise sage type saying that you said like, well, I always say, or so-and-so always says, or someone always says, well, Confucius says, well, what about what Christ says? See, because that's the single most important thing for you. Doesn't matter what, what Josh says. If you can't take and I can't show you, oh, that's what the truth says. In your witnessing, in your life, is your life marked by saying, I do this and I live this way and I don't say these things, I don't practice these things, I don't go here, I do go here, and it's all because you could take someone to the scripture and say, because here's what God says is valuable, in written form, and I am just a humble servant simply trying to obey the truths that have been revealed before me. 
Our lives must be consistent with this reliable text of Scripture. We don't have the right to play fast and loose and pick and choose with what we believe is reliable or unreliable. I love what a good friend of mine, Dr. Bookman, would always say as, as, we were, as, as I was being trained and taught and mentored through him. He would always say, could you imagine... If all of a sudden at one particular point you're reading the Bible and a faithful Christian person said to you, you know, here's the thing. You read the Bible, and he said, and, and yet there's one thing that is untrue in there. I'm not going to tell you what it is. I'm not going to tell you where it is. But everything else beyond that is, is spot on. He goes, how would you read your Bible after that? You would read your Bible to look for the one thing that is not true, and you would look for the sense of the unreliable nature to it. We have a text of scripture that is so utterly reliable to our, to our lives, and yet we have to grip our own soul to say, what does my life portray if I believe that it is this reliable? Is it reliable when somebody in my, in, in my family were to pass away and how I grieve? Is it reliable when all of a sudden I get news that I would otherwise not want to have? Is it reliable when I'm discouraged? Is it reliable when I'm using, when I, when I lose my job? Is it reliable when all of a sudden a tragic incident happens? Is it reliable when all of a sudden I have broken relationships? In all and every part of our life, it is reliable for every circumstance that we will go through. The more we believe that, the more, more drawn to the text of scripture we become the more deeper our faith gets informed by the truth. Now notice this. It's a trustworthy saying and full of acceptance. Now, let's just look at the saying. Here's what the saying is. Here's the trustworthy saying. Christ came into the world to save sinners. Okay, now forget the other part for just a moment where Paul says, of whom I am the foremost. Because the trustworthy saying is encapsulated in this particular statement. Okay, now, in some sense, if you're, if you're ever asked the question, can you give a summary of the gospel in eight words or less? Here's your text. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's it. That was the gospel mission that was the mission that Jesus accepted. It was the statement that Paul says is reliable. So what does that mean in extension to us? It means that the gospel encapsulated in this phrase that Christ came into the world to save sinners is completely reliable for salvation. It's good and it's reliable for my salvation, for your salvation, for anybody's salvation that you know who is not a believer. It's, so, it's, it's reliable for anybody from this time forward until Christ comes and, and makes all things new. This is the one single message that Christians bear as ambassadors. So you can take that home and I'm a really short, simple kind of guy and I think I love it when people do summary things and here Paul does us a favor. Give me the gospel in eight words. Christ came into the world to save sinners. And I'll tell you what, there is something magnificent about this declaration. Do this with me for a moment. Turn to the book of John, chapter, chapter 1. John chapter 1 in the gospels, because often as we think about the nature of, 
you know, when we, we think about Christ Jesus coming into the world, many theologians, as you look at this very text, will say, man, this sounds so, so like the Apostle John. Because John would always also talk about Jesus coming into the world. John chapter 1, uh, go down to verse, uh, verse number 9. Notice what he says. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Now move forward to John chapter 3 for a moment. John chapter 3 in verse number 19. Notice what he says here. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Go even further to John chapter 12 for a moment. Notice these statements. John chapter 12 in verse number 46. Here's what, here's what John says. I have, Jesus is saying, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And one more, John chapter 18. John chapter 18, verse 37. Here's what John records. It says, then Pilate said to him, so you are a king, and Jesus said, you say that I am a king for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What does that say about the reliability about this statement? That every Christian who is genuinely repentant and trusting in Christ for their salvation has to embrace this gospel. You cannot be a Christian and then not embrace portions of this trustworthy saying. Notice what he's saying. Christ came into the world. What does that tell you? It says something about his pre-existent state, although it's more of a byproduct or something that we see, not necessarily because, because Paul is saying, let me teach you about the pre-existence of Christ. It's more as, as he's dealing with issues, all of a sudden he is informing us that there was a person, Christ, who came into the world. Well, it, it begs the question, well, where was he before then? Was he created and how did he come into existence? And all throughout Paul's theology and John's theology, you get this statement of John 1.1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Nothing existed before the triune Godhead. You go all the way back to Genesis and what does he say? The earth was formless and void and darkness covered the face of the earth. And the Spirit of God was present. I think what we understand from, from Paul's expression is something here even of a larger appreciation. You know, you realize that the Apostle Paul and all the other apostles that were writing inspired texts of Scripture were not like sitting in a cave and not sharing and hearing other, each other's uh, perspective on the truth. I think what you see is, there is a, there's an informed perspective of the collection of the inspiration of, of, of the text of Scripture that was being collected. And don't think to yourself that Paul isn't reading what Luke says or Paul wasn't reading what John had to write. These were going on and there was a collection of these doctrinal statements. And he says, Christ, there was something about this Christ this Christ that in his pre-existence, no one created him. He always was ever existent in time past. This Christ broke into the world. 
And it begs this question. Why come here if you're God? I mean, of all the places you could go and be satisfied and doing and, 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 and experiencing all the pleasures of relationship in the Godhead that is absolutely perfect, why would you come to the world? The world which is so marked by sinfulness from the very beginning of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Well, he came into the world with one primary mission, to save sinners. Do you love those statements when you read the gospel and Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and they're all up in arms saying to him, like, why are you going to the tax collector, the Pharisee, the adulterer? Why are you hanging out with them? And you're eating with them and this is just, we just, we hate it. And Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a physician. It's the sick. It's the sick that are in need. It is the sick for whom Jesus came to heal. And you know who those were? It was us. Jesus Christ came into the world with one primary objective, to save those who were lawbreakers. But do you realize that when someone continues to go down the trajectory of being at odds with God. They are, as one commentator said, on a collision course with God's judgment of their souls and their misdeeds. And they cannot see it, and they will not choose him, and they hate God. And Jesus Christ came to save not good people, he came to save sinful people. And that's us. And that saving was something that every single one of us was in need of. And notice Paul's declaration. He gives this bit of addendum to this trustworthy saying. He says, it's deserving of full acceptance. Christ came into the world to save sinners. And then he says this. Of whom I am the foremost. One translation says, I am the chiefest of sinners. So often as we look at a statement like this, uh, and, and if you look at all the text of what Paul would say in this trustworthy saying, we come to a text and the place that we highlight the most is, look, Paul was the chiefest of sinners. But see, that's not really Paul's emphasis. Paul's emphasis was, to highlighting the overflowing abundant grace of God that came in the mission of Christ to come into this world to save sinners and then he happens to say something about himself. Of whom I am the foremost. Another way to describe this, trying to get an understanding of what he's trying to declare here, he's talking about someone, he is saying, if you could rank them, I was at the top of the list it was the, it's the idea of the phraseology when all of a sudden somebody does so incredible at some sports or academics or music or whatever it happens to be, and we listen to the way that they perform and whatever it was, and we say, man, look at them. They are in a league of their own. Paul is saying, when it came to sin, I was in a league of my own. When I view my own life, I am the worst of the worst. And this trustworthy saying Paul is telling Timothy, it transformed me. It took me to understanding a truth about myself 
Now let's just be plain because the reality is, is I love it when things are plain. And so does God. The truth is, this timeless reality of something that you have to embrace about yourself, apart from which you embracing it and I embracing it, the gospel doesn't mean anything. We are so sinful to the core. Do you believe that about yourself? The theological category of moral, de- of total depravity, you and I would never come to Christ unless Christ drew us to his saving grace. Have you noticed that even afterward, the sin nature is so pervasive that you have to fight against it? This saving of sinners means nothing if you don't, saving means nothing if, if there is no sinner to save. Which is why the world is so marked differently than Christ, the Christian community. Because only in the Christian community will they embrace this truth about themselves. You know, I wonder if, if Paul was living in a day like today, if all of a sudden some would say, Paul, I know this statement is so trustworthy, but you know, maybe this is just a revealer that your self-esteem tank is just a little bit low. Is that really what he's after here? See, the declaration of God's overabundant grace means nothing all of a sudden if you're not a person who is in need of saving. This is not just Paul in self-defamation saying, hey, you know, I know you guys think you're sinners, but I'll outmatch your sin. Paul is making the declaration to highlight the overflowing grace. Sinner, you and I need to respond like Paul responded in the way he viewed his life and the truth about himself. And the truth that he, the ugly reality was, if it wasn't for Christ saving him from his sin, he would not be saved. And that's us. Do you remember the places you were, the things you were doing, the mindset you used to have as an unbeliever that drew you more and more away from Christ? And the truth was, is you could never put your finger on why you were not happy, why you couldn't find purpose, why everyone else that you came across who were believers, why they would have a smile, why they could enjoy life and All of those things. Why? Because you didn't recognize something about yourself. And in order to be saved, you need to recognize you're a sinner. Perhaps there's somebody here today that you've been kind of looking at your own life and saying to yourself, but I'm not that bad. Well, Jesus came to die and was sent into the world for people who were sinners. And it wasn't just half-hearted sinners. They were sinners to the core of who they were. They were born in sin. They could do no other than sin. And apart from the recognition that Jesus would save you, you will be lost for eternity in your sin. And we desire here at the chapel and every ministry that we have and every place that we go, that we bear with ourselves. We are ambassadors to this gospel of Jesus Christ, and we're telling everybody we know. Now, it's not, it's something interesting in the text when Paul says, he says, 
I am the foremost of sinners. But when he says, I am, you'd kind of expect him to say something like this. I was. Wouldn't you? But he uses the present active tense to understand the magnitude of his own saving grace was not just something he did back then. It was part of what permeated even his very existence was the struggle and fight against sin. And he looked at his own life even after coming to Christ and he would say, I am presently and actively one of the worst sinners I know. Now what's at stake if we don't believe that about ourselves? Is all of a sudden we get a little puffed up, don't we? I mean, Jesus' grace needed to save. He came to save, and he came into the world to save sinners. But I'll tell you what, I needed a little less, less grace than you did, that's for sure. Every single one of us needed the same kind of saving grace. Isn't it remind you, flip back to the book of Romans for a moment in Romans chapter 7. We understand this present idea from Paul's perspective in Romans 7, which is a post a post-salvation understanding in Romans chapter 7. In verse number 21, here's what Paul says. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies at close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? Note this declaration. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I'm still tempted to serve the law of sin. See, Paul is presently understanding the magnitude of his sin. And is this magnitude of your sin and my sin and Paul's sin that put Jesus on the cross, that shed his blood, that was poured out for the, for the forgiveness of sins so that you and I could live a life with, a, with a, an appreciation of the kind of grace that was overflowing in abundance. Paul wasn't saying this. It was overflowing in abundance for grace because I needed it back then, but I don't need it now. The same grace that you were saved with is the same grace that sustains you today. It's the same grace. It's the same love for Christ. It's the same work of the, of the grace of God. He transformed you at justification and he continues to transform you through sanctification. He grows you and Paul is saying, when I look at myself and I see the kind of sinner I am, it's almost as if I fall to my knees and think, oh my goodness, Lord, your grace is so overwhelming. What would I do without your grace? And when I got your grace, I, I've, I'm, I've been a person now who is influenced and, and given the fruit of love and, and, and peace in my own heart. I've been taken, I am now at peace with God, and now I can have the peace of God. It is this truth that Paul just relished in. He enjoyed it and appreciated it. I can only imagine how hard this was to be when he's saying, here's a trustworthy saying, Christ came to save people. People like me. Believers, it doesn't matter what kind of sin you choose. It's the same kind of sinner. 
sinners sin, and that's the problem. And sin separates us from a holy and majestic God. Do you imagine what it would have been like for the apostles, those who had walked with Jesus, all of a sudden to hear the transformative power on the road to Damascus, and Paul was in Damascus declaring the gospel that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and all of a sudden he gets to Jerusalem, and none of the apostles want to meet him. And he records in Acts chapter 9, verse 21, just listen to this. He says, and, and all who heard him, Paul, all who had heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And, and, and has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? They heard this man who hunted down Christians and now all of a sudden came to saving grace in Christ. And it took a guy like Barnabas to go, all right, Paul, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, Put my neck out here for you. I'm going to bring you to the apostles because was there a real transformation? They started to look at the gospel Paul was preaching and they realized a transforming work of the Spirit of God had taken place. Could you imagine the kind of conversations between the apostles and, and Paul? How? When? I mean, here was a guy at the early part of the stages of Acts where Stephen is preaching the glorious truths of the gospel and all of a sudden his garments are laid at the feet of one man named Saul who watched Stephen being stoned to death and he was out hunting down other people and God says, not anymore. You are mine. And you're forever gonna be declaring my glorious gospel to the truth to the Gentiles and to the Jews, and to all who will hear it. This humility is often found in various components of different Christian history, but in one particular place it is found is in a book by John Bunyan entitled Grace Abounding to the Chiefest of Sinners. And when you read this, here's this, some of these statements that you will hear John Bunyan. John Bunyan, the one who will write and sit in a prison cell and, read, and, and write the Pilgrim's Progress, which this allegorical understanding of the Christian walk. And he would say things like this. Oh, the remembrance of my great sin, of my great temptations, and of my great fears of perishing forever. They bring afresh into my mind the remembrance of my great help, my great support from heaven, and the great grace that God extended to such a wretch as I. Believers, John Bunyan nailed it. We are those wretches in whom he came to save. And when you look at your life, there's nothing about you, there is nothing about me that is deserving of that overabundance of grace. This truth that continues to permeate our lives. But let me ask you this. Do you believe that Christ came into this world? If you're here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, I want that. I want to believe that then you've got to believe some things, don't you? Do you believe that Jesus Christ was sent from God the Father, who is perfectly sinless, 
on your behalf so that he could take the punishment and he could pay for your sins on the cross and shed his own blood and he would be nailed to the cross instead of you. Do you believe Christ came to save you as a sinner? See, there's a confession that has to be made by a person who begins to recognize that their truth and their salvation belongs to no other than Jesus Christ. Not a church, not men's traditions, and that's what Paul is fighting against. The traditions and myths and genealogies of men, they cannot save, they don't have the right interpretation of the law, and that wrong interpretation of the law will lead you away from grace, not towards grace. The basic truth about all sinners is all sinners need saving. And all sinners were provided for on the cross of Calvary. He shed his blood to provide and make available to all who would come to repentance and faith. You can pray that prayer if you're here. Young or old, and you say, you know what, I know I'm a sinner, and Jesus came to save me, then you know what, you can in the quietness of your own pew, in your own place, right now, you can call out to him and, and confess your sins and say, Jesus, I know that you came into this world to save sinners like me, and I need your forgiveness so that I can experience your overabundant grace. And you know what he'll do for you? He will give you the grace that you long for, the peace that you could never have without him. He'll remove the wrath of God from your life and you can live for him for the rest of your life. You can make that decision and pray that genuine repentant prayer and turn from your sin. This is not some easy believism, just quote the words or say it exactly how someone who taught you to say it says it. This is a genuine belief. That's why Romans 10, 9, and 10 says, if you believe in your heart, you've got to believe what you're saying, that Jesus came into the world and he came for you. And if you believe that, that's faith. That's faith in the Christ who came to save your souls and he will no doubt save you. And you can have it. He's not keeping it from you. And I think it begs the question for you, if you're here and you don't know the truth, or you say, you know what, I know that, he's so kind to do that, then my question to you is, what is keeping you from making that decision today? I'll tell you what it may be, is that you just don't want to think that you're just in need of saving. And the Bible says you must understand that sinners need saving. It's the whole reason why Jesus came. To take away the sinner component leaves it at odds with why did you come into the world to save when there's no sinners here needing to be saved? It makes no sense. The gospel is that Jesus came to save sinners and your perspective about yourself has to change. It has to be one where you're looking at yourself going, I am in need of God's grace every single day. This truth has to permeate your life. It means that for you and I, we have to love it. We have to appreciate it and value it. But it doesn't just stop there, does it? We notice a truth about Christ. Notice in this last component in, in 1 Timothy 1, he says, 
he says as he extends this in verse 16, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience and ex- as an example to bless those who, who were to believe in him for eternal life. See, there's something about what this truth about yourself, that you're a sinner and, and the gospel has come to save sinners. And now he says, let me give you a truth about Christ. And it intersects with my transformed life. He says, but I received mercy for this reason, to display something. This idea that he is saying to display or to demonstrate or to make visible something that was not visible. is so that when we see Christ save sinners, that we step back and say, and we are amazed with the patience and kindness of Christ. Paul says that's why that he, for this reason, saved me so that I could demonstrate how long-suffering this Savior really is. Think how patient God was. Do you think that it was hard for him to not intervene when Stephen was being stoned for the proclamation of the gospel and having the clothes being handed to a guy named Saul? How badly he would have wanted to say, Stephen, No, this is wicked. This is terrible. And yet his long suffering and God knowing what he was going to do with Paul and Paul would remember all of the sense of the wickedness from where he came and how he was like these false teachers who proclaimed a different gospel, who would even hunt people down for the gospel. And now he's transformed and saying, I was this and now I'm this. This mercy for this reason, to display and make visible the patience of Christ. Have you noticed you struggle a little bit with being an impatient person? You're like, I don't know, you know, every time we think about it in our own lives, I think, man, I could always ask for the prayer of, God, please help me to be more patient. And there's a constant revealing, like, one of the times this last week, for example, we, we rec- I just recognized that my own impatience of my own soul. I'm sitting in the drive-thru at a McDonald's uh, trying to enjoy to get my son some french fries. And of course, secretly, partly of them were for me too. But I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, what is wrong with the fry guy back there and what has taken him so long? I need these fries. And I need them ASAP. My stomach needs them. And you can sit and you can watch people if something is as is, is situational as a restaurant and when someone doesn't bring their food in a timely manner, they almost, they, they struggle with a level of patience. Can you even become, can you and I even come to any kind of grips of what it's like for a holy God of heaven to see the wickedness of the world and the wickedness of people and say, I'm gonna save them, but I'm gonna do it in my time. In our own minds, it doesn't make sense that God would allow certain amounts of evil to exist only up until a point of time, like in Paul's life, he'll say, not anymore. Now you're mine. And he draws them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ through repentance and faith. This redemptive purpose of the work of Christ and his mission, it was a mission of mercy. And Paul was the recipient of that mercy, as are we. 
It is this Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This idea of forbearance, bearing up. Patience was an element and a virtue that Timothy was going to have to, he's going to need as he spoke with these false teachers. Because Paul never wanted Timothy to get to a point in this context to say, Timothy, hate these guys. What if what God intended to do is take some of these false teachers and turn into gospel proclaimers? If all of a sudden you start hating the person and the sin that's going on in their lives and you forget that they can do no other without Christ then you'll get frustrated at an unbelieving person who can do nothing else instead of trying to give them and show them the grace of God through the truth of Christ. This is the truth that he wanted to proclaim, that you could have peace with God. This overabundance, overflowing grace was there to display the patience of God. And believer, don't you look at Christ and don't you just even say now in your own Christian walk, even after you've been saved, think about how patient he was with you last week. Think about every time that you struggled in your own mind, no one else knew it, he knew it. You struggled with moving away from sin, living a new life in Christ. You went back perhaps even to some of the things you shouldn't go back to. And the patience of Christ was overwhelmingly helping you and waiting and saying, you know what? I am not going to leave you or forsake you. He'll never leave you, Christian. But he wants you to appreciate it. He wants you to, ha- to, to be said about you the way it was said about Paul, that he saved me to demonstrate his perfect patience and kindness so that you would have the same thing. And as this would be proclaimed to the world, he says in this statement, as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. This idea of eternal life is, is this equivalent to what we find in the gospel, not just, I'm gonna be to heaven, That's certainly part of it, and I praise God for that. I'm looking forward to that. But you know, this fuller context of the idea of those in whom would find eternal life is is wrapped up in John 10.10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life, and they can have it abundantly. This abundant reality of your faith and life in Christ He wants you to experience the joy, the peace, the contentment, the longing for heaven, the security in your own soul that once you're saved, you're always saved, that no one one can take that from you, that you're held in the hands of Christ, that you are sealed according to Ephesians 4.30 until the day of redemption, and according to Philippians 1, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. It is the abundant life, and it is not the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. It's the exact opposite. It's not what can you do for me. It's who am I to deserve such grace? You owe me nothing. And yet you give me everything. Mercy and grace never, Christian, never grow tired of hearing it. It is this abundant life in Christ that you get to know 
so that Paul, when he would finally come to 1 Timothy 4, 8, he would say, while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. See, the reality is, is we're supposed to live today like we will one day live for eternity. The same kind of heart, the same kind of disposition, the same kind of attitude, the same way we suffer here will help us as we look. We should be the kind of person here today and living our Christian life in a way that we are experiencing the the life transformation that we will ultimately one day experience in heaven. And you know what? I hope that at some particular point that we live in such a way as believers here that we're so Christ-like that that's our disposition that all of a sudden when we meet each other in heaven, it won't be such a drastic change. Like, who were you? It's like, oh, I know you. We lived life together. We were transformed together. We got saved the same year together. We, God did something and we are now living for him. Your life is his. It's the abundant life in Christ. And the whole point of his section is that, is that the patience of Christ was to offer his grace and it was enough to cleanse the vilest of sinners and to make them a vessel that would be used in the hands of the king. And believer, if you're saved, that's you. He saw you as someone who was worth saving. And he loved you. And he, on his, own, on his own son, was willing to put all of your sin so that you could be saved. I just love this 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Are you able to be patient with people, with sinners? What about that person who's at work, who's not saved, and you think, oh, they're such a jerk. Will you be patient with them and try to share the grace and glory of God's overabundant grace? Or will you just be sidetracked by the ugliness of sin in a way that you say, I just can't take it. I can't work with them. Instead of saying, they need God's grace. What about somebody who's in your family? Maybe, maybe a, a relative, maybe a son or daughter, maybe somebody who's just living a life that is totally against God and you've told them and told them but it doesn't just seem, they have never embraced it. Will you be patient with them? Because I'll tell you what, in God's perfect timing and patience, he desires to save the lost. Don't give up hope. There are so many husbands and wives and family members who look and think, but Lord, when will you save them? He'll save them in his perfect timing. But don't give up hope that their need is still the same as yours was. Don't become so impatient with unbelievers. You know, when you begin to understanding if you're transformed into the image of Christ is when all of a sudden you can you can be patient with people who are in the previous category of, of, of verses 9 through 11, those who are unholy, those who are sinners, profane, 
those who strike their fathers, murderers, sexually immoral, those who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and anything else that's not consistent with doctrine. Can you be patient knowing that the saving grace of God is coming for everybody of, of, of who sins on any level? He wants to save. Are you growing in patience those, for those who even sin repetitively against you as believers? When they sin time and time again and they ask forgiveness and they do repent, do you get yourself a limit and go, this is enough? Or can you be patient with them to grow? Moms and dads, can we be patient with our kids as they grow? Can we be patient with one another in our marriages and our friendships? Be a good listener. Be patient, beginning to try to understand what is driving their perspective of life. And of all these things, he comes to the end of this section about false teaching, and he gives all this really deep, really tough things to these false teachers and who they were and where their, their wrong gospel would lead them and all their practices. And then he says, but this is the trustworthy saying, Christ came to save sinners of whom, whom I am the foremost. And he wants to show his grace to people. And it's almost like he gets to the end of the section and it's just like, okay, stop the train. I've got to praise him for a moment. It's like, and then he ends with this incredible doxology in verse seven. To the king of ages. What is that? To the one who has the eternal dominion of all ages and who rightfully rules the earth. This one who in pre-existent form, this God of, of all eternity, he is saying this God of grace from, from eternity past, he is the one who deserves praise. To the king of ages, the one who bears dominion, to the one who is immortal. What does that tell you? A one who is not touched by death because he's not touched by sin. That this gospel of Jesus Christ who came into the world to save sinners is consistent with the doxology. He's the king. He is immortal. He doesn't die because of sin. We die because of sin. The one who is invisible but who has been made visible when he came into this world and now has been brought to light so Jesus could say, if you want to know the Father, then look at me. So we could read Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. This king of ages, the immortal, the invisible, the only God. This is a monotheistic perspective. There is only one God and there is only one God who can save. Is Jesus Christ alone. This is played out in the Old Testament Shema. The Lord our God is one. And he says, what's the whole purpose of this doxology? He says, it, that it would be honor and glory forever and ever. And then he does what most conservative Christians never want to do, amen. Which is just a statement that says, very true, or let it be. 
But he gets to this end, and he sees his great need and his great sin, and yet he sees the most clear picture of this victorious, mercy-filled, forgiving Savior in the person of Christ. And he just can't help himself and say, to the King of ages, to the immortal, to the invisible, to the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Let it be that for eternity, is what he says. Christians, is that how you live your life? Is that why you live your life today? Do you stand for the truth of the gospel at all costs? Are you willing to be patient and be filled and be a picture of the patience of Christ with the people who are around you? Because he came to save. And by God's grace, he's going to save everyone in whom he chooses and sets his affection on. And he will leave no one without being provided for in salvation. He shed, all, he shed his blood so that all could be offered this salvation. His mercy is great. And I'll tell you when you begin to start seeing it even greater is when you see the depth of your own sin. And you embrace who you know you are without Christ. And you begin to see who you are now in Christ. And then you can break into a doxology while you drive home today. And you can say amen. Now it's not here. And you can say to the king of ages, to the immortal, invisible, the only God, I want my life to be, to be a life that's honoring to you and that you are glorified forever and ever and ever. Let's pray. Father, We take a look at the kind of sinners that we are. Where do we certainly resonate with Paul's addendum to this trustworthy saying that we are wicked sinners. But as sinners, we have a God who is so filled with overflowing grace for those who repent and believe in the son that he sent into the world to save sinners. And it's only based upon the merits of Christ that we are given the gift of his righteousness that doesn't even belong to us so that we could enter into heaven one day, not by our own good works, but based on the work of Christ on our behalf. Lord, help us to always appreciate this and to not lose sight of the overflowing grace that has come into this world to save. In your name we pray. Amen.